0: Today's sermon text is Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Um, Days like this are not something I ever look forward to. Um, My Fridays and Saturdays and however long I've been thinking about what I'm going to say is usually filled with a sense of anxiety Uh, sometimes sorrow, Um, at times a little fear, Um, especially in issues like I'm going to talk about today where there is such polarization, not just in our world, but crazily in the church. But it's times like this that as a pastor, I feel so close to you. There's this connection that we have today. This isn't just another Sunday, week 37 or whatever it is. This is a day that we all come together and there's something heavy in our hearts that is causing us all to sort of lean in. And some of you are in pain. I've seen, I saw tears as soon as I walked in the door this morning. And I felt a yearning to be shepherded, to be cared for. And that's my agenda today. That's my agenda today. Um, Am I here to fuss at anybody? (laughs) Get mad at anybody? Certainly not to shame anyone. I think that's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem that we face in our culture and why the racial tension that we have is so metastasized, it's because it's not safe to talk about it. It's not safe for me to say, this is who I am. Will you be with me and endure with me so that I can grow and change? I don't know how to grow and change. I don't like what I feel inside of me. But will you be with me and not label me while I am in this state of weakness? That's rare in our culture. That's rare. And so, even though we are a spit in the bucket in terms of this issue, something spectacular can happen among us. If we become the kind of community where it's safe to be broken, where it's safe to be really broken, where it's safe, This has been a bloody week. This has been an emotional week. Very emotional. And I'm convinced that one of the things that our church needs is an environment to process these things together. It never ceases to amaze me how whenever I've been in a group setting and the issue of race emerged, nobody got bored. Pores were open, eyes were open, people were guarded, concerned, maybe even scared. But when it became known to the group, I have a particular men's group that I led about 15 years ago in mind when I'm saying this. 10 or 15 people were there. When the issue came up and it was safe to say, here's what I'm thinking and seeing What do you think about that? It's amazing how healing that was. I would really love to see that in our church. I would love for us in our minds, when we talk about being a church for the brokenhearted, that we also have people who struggle with racism in mind. I would like for those broken people to find love and encouragement among us. And when we think about broken people coming to our church, I would also like to think about those whose family and ethnicity has been on the short end of the stick for generations and who may be jaded and cynical and untrusting and be able to find a safe harbor among us so that simply by the presence of God's people, the power of the Holy Spirit can begin to change that person's heart. I think that would be amazing if our church was like that. We're not. We're not. We can be. And so tonight, I think it's necessary, I think it's providential that we gather together. Um, I know all of you can't make it, but I hope the reason you can't make it is because of a legitimate reason. I would love for us all to come together, to come together. All of our Sunday evening small groups are going to be, are canceled. And gather at Missio Day. It's at 621, I think that's the address, South White Station. Uh, it's a smaller church, smaller building that is. And we might all be crammed in a fellowship hall. Um, but I think it would be amazing if we could come together be together in a more intimate environment, pray together, hear stories, worship together. It's just going to be Jeremy and a guitar. Just be together and love one another. We need to be rehumanized after a week that has dehumanized us. And I'm not just talking about. The killings that we've seen this week. I'm talking about the rhetoric that we've seen all over social media. It's been ugly, it's been demonic, and maybe even necessary. I have, uh, you guys know my. struggles, my really bizarre relationship I have with Facebook. I talk about it often. Um, The reason I talk about it often is because Facebook has become the new marketplace. There are millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans on Facebook. Facebook is the new water cooler where we come and share our most intimate thoughts. Facebook is where we go to be with people that we want to be with. Facebook is where we go to be affirmed by people that we're afraid don't like us. Facebook is where we go to see pictures of, other, of our friends' families on vacation. It's where we go to see what our friends ate for dinner last night. Facebook is the new marketplace. That's what Facebook is. Facebook is where I can keep in touch with my family in Toronto, Canada. Facebook is where I can keep in touch with my dear friends in Minneapolis, Minnesota and Southern California and uh, Phoenix, Arizona and other parts of the world where I have friends, my my very good friend and cousin by marriage in Sri Lanka. Facebook does that. Facebook even allows us to reach a degree of authenticity that we would never reach, I think, face-to-face. I think it's an ugly authenticity at times, but it's authentic. We see who we really are. Somehow, being behind a keyboard or on a smartphone, gives us the brazen courage to say things that we would never, ever, ever say to somebody's face. And that's where, that's the catch. It's authentic, but it's dehumanizing. I don't know what to do with Facebook. I might be off of it tomorrow, I might be on it. I don't know, I don't know. I love it and I hate it. It's like crunches, you know, I love it and I hate it. But we need to be away from Facebook, at least tonight. We need to be with each other and look at each other in the eye and see the people that we're lobbing toxic comments at, the people that we are, that we are uh, broadcasting interesting news, news headlines to, left or right wing paranoia to. We need to see these people, and we need to hug these people, and we need to shake these people's hands, and we need to sing with these people, and we need to remember that those people, even though they, we might have divergent political views, that should never, ever be the fundamental identifier of our relationship. We are of Jesus, and because we are of Jesus, our relationship as people who have the blood of Jesus coursing through our spiritual veins, our relationship should be able to endure this, but the only way that's going to happen is by getting away from those headlines, from cable news, from Facebook, and being together in the same room and looking at each other. Looking at each other. Um, There's been some crazy things that I've heard said this week. I've heard people say things like quit wallowing in the past. I know that's painful for some of you to hear it, I'm sorry. I had one person inbox me this week who I have no idea who this person is. And one of the many things he said, and some of the things were just too preposterous to bring up here, said this. He did a little Jesus juke with me. Um, People need to let go of the past and get a vision for what Jesus wants to do in the world. And I'm sure that message will really resonate with hurting, I'm sure. I knew this was going to be said. I could see it coming from a mile away. The morning after I heard, the the day after I heard about uh, Alton Sterling's death, I knew this was going to be lodged at me, and it was several times this week. What about the 69 shootings in Chicago Memorial Day weekend and the six deaths? I don't see people protesting that. I don't see any marches. If you give a blank about one thing, why don't you give a blank about the other? Unquote. These statements are tough to hear. I'm not sure if you should say this in church or not. I may be breaking some rules here, but these are tough to hear. We don't like to hear it because these statements show us who we are. We don't like to look under the hood. And see who we are. That's why we want people just to deal with it. Just to get past it. Somebody even tried to make me believe this week that Martin Luther King said something along the lines of, quit worrying about the past. I couldn't help but laugh, or I'd like really say some really bad profanity at that point. Um, It's just preposterous. Some of the things that we want history and people to say to shore up our positions on things. What about those 70 shootings in Chicago? I guess my response to that, my knee-jerk response to that would be this. How do you know people aren't protesting that? I mean, it may not be on CNN, but I can't believe that people in Chicago are okay with that. Like there's some sort of ethnic conspiracy here. Black people can kill black people. But once white people do, uh-uh, we're going to the news media. Really? I mean, come on. Inner city violence has been a painful fact as far back as any of us and our grandparents can remember. It is. And I know for a fact that in every city in this country, there are activists, both Christian and non-Christian, who work every day by the sweat of their brow to be peacemakers and to bring justice to victims of violent crime. Just because it's not on the news doesn't mean that people don't give a blank. That's my first response to that. My second would be that I know that African Americans are not content with that reality. I know they're not. I know you aren't. I know you're not. I know it's heartbreaking. For the six people that were murdered on Memorial Day weekend, there were six funerals. And there were six families devastated and mourning and grieving and crying. And they are still mourning and grieving and crying today. I don't care how violent the person who was killed or how innocent the person who was killed. People are mourning for family members whose life came to an end. Death. Nobody likes death. Death hurts everybody, no matter who dies. But the fact is, my friends, that being killed, slain by a police officer, regardless of the circumstances, is to throw salt in an already bloodied. And sensitive, gaping ethnic wound that is synonymous with the centuries long struggle that our African American brothers and sisters have had to endure. You cannot isolate those instances and separate those and and take the emotion out of it. You can't. It is painful, it is terrible. And if you actually have African-American friends, you know that those friends, every single one of them, has a story of racial profiling, has a story. If it's not them, it's somebody that they know. A painful story of being arrested for no reason, seemingly, or a trivial reason that, honestly speaking, in my opinion, and you could take this or leave it, it's my opinion, that most white people would not have been prosecuted for. I'm not talking about violent crimes and stuff like that. I'm talking about bro- broken, tra- you know, uh, broken taillights. Again, I know that there are circumstances that we are not yet aware of. I'll talk about that in a second. Talk about it now. That's the next point in my notes. <laughs> um, We need to wait for the facts to come out before we start speaking. There's some truth there. We shouldn't try people in, our, in the court of public opinion. That's, that is true. But we're not talking about some sort of legislation being passed. We're talking about the death of people that strikes a chord with sufferers, the death of people. Alton Sterling and Philan, Philandro Castile are still dead. And I've actually seen people say on social media, I can't mourn for people whose I don't know the circumstances around their death. The thing is that they're still dead. And there are still families that are broken hearted right now. Nobody's asking you to anoint someone as a saint. I don't, I don't think I hear that from people in the black community. I think I hear people saying, weep with us. Don't tell us whether or not we have a right to weep. Pastor H.B. Charles said this, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. It does not tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. But he's a criminal, which is a little hypocritical coming from folks who say, let's wait for the facts to come out. Do you see the the problem there with that? I'm not trying to scold anybody here today. I just want to talk openly some things that I'm feeling and thinking. I'm not shaming anyone. That is not my agenda. That is not my goal. I want you to walk away today troubled by reality but feeling gently shepherded toward that trouble. I want you to feel unsettled because being unsettled usually leads to cha- can lead to change. But I don't want you to feel beat up. I have no bone to pick with anybody in this room, none. I'm convicted by my own sin in regards to the, all these issues. But let's say that these men who were killed, and I'm speaking specifically of Philandro and and Alton Sterling, let's say hypothetically they were violent criminals. But let's also say that Philandro or Alton was your father your brother, your son, despite their hypothetical sins, how would you feel if someone said, I'm not ready to weep with you and and empathize with you because, you know, your, your son had a sketchy record. There are still people who are reeling in agony right now there's still people. You could, you could sort of get the drift of where I'm going with this today. I don't think it's a coincidence that we land in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul is entreating two leading women in the church, possibly church founders, because the church in Philippi, Paul started with women, a group of women. He found praying outside of the city of Philippi, I don't think it's any coincidence that he's talking to two leaders in the church and he's telling them, please, I beg you, come together in the Lord. I know you disagree. I mean, you think, Paul, we've only got a handful of books in the New Testament. And God sovereignly allowed this book to land in our New Testament. And it's in that book that your name, Euodia, Sentiki, are you're going to be forever known As two ladies who couldn't get along in the church One day we're going to meet you Odia and Sentiki, And I'm just going to say, listen, hey whew, I am so sorry Your name was in the Bible like that <laughs> I hate that happened to you I, Did you two girls work this out yet? You know <laughs> Are you cool? Because we want to have a community group here in, you know, in, the New King, in the New Jerusalem And we want you to come be a part of it together but if you're still working on things, you know. These two women could not get along. They could not see eye to eye. And what Paul says to them, it's amazing. He says down in, in verse uh, t- chapter uh, 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, also, I ask you also, true companion, maybe one of the pastors there or the pastor there, we don't know, help these Women, community, you have a responsibility to help these two women reconcile and love one another in the Lord. You have a responsibility. Do you accept that responsibility? I'm not talking about people outside our church here, although we should be peacemakers. I'm talking about people who call upon the same Jesus, who have joined the same church, who have submitted to the same pastoral staff, who said, I'm going to be, do life with this group of people, this is what this is talking about. Are you going to take responsibility and help one another come together in God? And this command here to agree in the Lord is more than just, okay, see eye to eye on an issue. The tone of that and the flavor of that, I think what Paul means by that is this. Come together and be one. Because he appeals to them, both of their names are written in the book of life. Remember who you are in Jesus. You are of Yahweh, the living God, and that happened through the sacrifice, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. This is who you are in Him. You must come together. You must not allow any issue in your relationship to give you an excuse to coldly withdraw from one another. If you do that, it is absolutely the opposite of who you are. You mustn't allow this. You mustn't. You mustn't. What if these men were your sons, your brothers, your fathers? You would want people to grieve with you. That's all I'm saying today. That's all I'm saying. Would you want in one solitary Terrible moment for your whole past to be held against you And even in some people's minds to justify your death Would you want that? No, none of us would None of us would And the fact is Is that with all these police officers With these two men who were killed earlier in the week We simply do not know the condition of their hearts We don't know We don't know. So when people say we must withhold judgment, yes, withhold judgment. Do not indict Alton Sterling in your your heart and mind. Don't do this. Don't do this. I want to say it was Jesus who said, Judge not, lest you be judged. And I don't think he was kidding when he said that. I don't think he was kidding. I want to move ahead to an illustration that I put together. Um, forgive my uh, PowerPoint lack of skills, but um, I want to show you slide number one. Slide one this is typically what Caucasians see when we look at the feelings and the hearts of African Americans. We see fear resentment and hatred and we want to know why is that there why do you tolerate that in your life what's up with this why can't you just forget the past move on and all the other sentiments that we've heard and said and thought that's what we see Here's what African Americans feel, if you move the slide too. See, there's a big difference. Big difference. The fear, resentment, and hatred that we see in some folks always emerges from a story. A life, an existence... That has been shaped by pain. We all know slavery. If you've done any studying or read anything on slavery, you know about that horrific and brutal middle passage in which slaves were made to stay in the bottom, the belly of a ship for months, living in their own filth. Treated mercilessly. We know that that went on for hundreds of years. We know that during the days of slavery, slaves were routinely allowed to marry and have children, and then their families were intentionally broken up and fragmented. Intentionally. We know that slaves were not allowed to know the day that they were born. We know that slaves were not allowed to become literate, to learn. If you want to know more about this, I I commend to you one of my very favorite books of all time, The Narrative of the Life by Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave. Uh, Amazing book. It's not a long book. It's amazing, thrilling, heartbreaking, disgusting. You'll read it. You'll feel anger, fear, strength because the man is a prophet of God. I mean, it's just incredible, incredible writing. It's like reading a modern-day Isaiah. It's incredible. But he talks about, in the days of slavery, how slaves were intentionally subjected to ongoing stripping of their identity so that they literally were made not men and not women. Hundreds of years, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and so on and so on. This shaped the identity The feelings, the story of people. Moving on from slavery. Back to the other slide. There we go. No, back one, back one. Middle slide, there you go, thank you. Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws. Segregating black people from white people. Intentionally subjecting black people to some of the worst living conditions. Systemic poverty horribly underperforming schools that go back two centuries, post-Civil War. This formed people. Notice at the end of this text that we're reading today where Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Critical to discipleship is being able to watch someone who is doing it right and then to mimic that person. That is all through Paul's writings. Jesus too, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's his way of saying, watch me. Put your life into mine and you'll look like me one day. Generations of people never had people who were formed In godly environments, but dehumanization form fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, and on and on and on and on and on. I'm speaking with this passion not because I've been tricked by the liberals, my friends. I'm speaking with this passion because I see now. I see now. And when you see stuff like this, you can't unsee it. Not only did they deal with... Uh, please get that slide up there. Not only did they, uh, our black African-American uh, friends deal with Jim Crow laws that dehumanized them, that kept them from using decent bathrooms and water fountains. We've heard those stories. Enforced illiteracy. This led to institutional poverty. Institutional poverty. I want to talk about that for a second. I was lazy in school. Really lazy. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And so I just sort of phoned it in. My chief goal in school was to avoid my dad's wrath. That was it. And if I could keep it above a D because they sort of knew eh, that's about as good as we're going to get with Chris um, I would say that Denise and I both never brought home books. She made straight A's. I made you know, mediocre grades. Um, but despite that, when I went to college, I had no scholarship. I had nobody look at me over saying, hey, we want you to come to our school. (laughs) Our school will be better with you. Nobody said that to me. My parents paid my way. When I needed $4,000 to complete my down payment for my very first house that I bought, my parents paid that for me. When poverty is institutionalized, there are generations of people who never receive that benefit of a doubt, who never receive that leg up in life. I'm not saying that's crucial. I'm not saying that that's, you have to have those advantages in order to succeed. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the African-American ethnic group in our country as a whole, that is rare amongst them. And I think that's sad. I think that's sad because I know that there are many mothers and fathers who are African-Americans who wish that they could do for their kids what my dad did for, what my dad did for me in Denise. I know they are. I know they are. I know that that's a sorrow with many people. Not only that, we, segregations, we know that, you know, almost a hundred years after slavery ends, there are still people who are being lynched in their front yards. There are people in this room who know people who died in, in the, in the uh, civil rights movement, the heat of it. There are people who, there's, their kids are constantly in failing schools. And when you're in failing schools, many teachers, man, they are bailing. They're wanting to get out of there as fast as they can. Thank God for the, a new movement of teachers like Teach Across America and Memphis Teacher Residency and other uh, other uh, groups that are uh, giving, people and training people, giving people a vision and training them to go back into the inner city schools and make a difference in kids' lives. Man, I hope I see more people do that. If my kids came home one day and said, Chris, or D- Chris, Dad, they're not say Chris, uh, Dad, <laughs> um, Dad, it's, it's either being a preacher or it's being a teacher. I'm going to say, go here, be a teacher. Not because I think my job's, you know, bad. I want to see my kids, my ge- the generations after me, make a difference in this world, man. Heal people, love people, serve people. And I want that to be informed by Scripture that says that you are salt and light in this broken world. I want them to experience that. I want them to know that. So this is what it looks like for a lot of people when you look at people and you see the response that they have and I know that some of the responses that we've seen are horrific the shootings in Dallas horrific in the same way though they're not all bad cops there are not all bad black people <laughs> my friends my god please don't lump people together under one label resist that temptation Unzip that. Unpack it. Look at each person where they are. Examine each heart and you will find that most of your assumptions are going to be blown up. Look at people. Look at them in the face. There's a multitude of anecdotal evidence that backs up police brutality. A multitude of it. A multitude of it. And this gives rise to a lot of the pain that oftentimes we don't understand in people's lives. What would you be like if your life was shaped by generations of brutality and abuse? If you were born in a person's place, do you think that there's something virtuous about you that would allow you to say, ah, forget about the past. Or are we all broken? Are we all broken? I think we are. I think if my skin's darker and I grew up in different situations, I think my character, my life, my destiny is totally different. It's totally different. Please understand, I am grateful for what I've been given. I don't feel ashamed of that. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Everything that you have, rejoice in. No Caucasian should feel guilty for an advantage that they have been given. But we should empathize and go to people who don't have our same advantages. We should put our life in their lives. Love them. Serve them. Be a part. Be a part. Lecrae Moore, there's the next slide. He's a Christ, he, Christian hip-hop artist, but he's, uh, um, the guy is entirely gospel-drenched. Um, this man actually performed at our church about eight years ago. And he said this in a recent article he wrote on Billboard magazine. He said, nobody would deny that if someone was a billionaire in 1962, his billions are going to affect all of his descendants. The reverse is also true. The lack of education, material, and finances for a slave are going to affect the descendants of that individual as well. So when you start looking at it like that and stepping back, you may say, ah, oh, okay, it's more of a systemic issue that's happening. If you start to see some of these infrastructural issues that will make a difference. But to, be f- <laughs> but to be fair, y'all are tricking me back there. But to be fair, that process takes humility on both sides. It also takes a great deal of humility for someone to quell his or her emotions, frustrations, and anger with another who constantly can't see through the emotional turmoil they're going through the person, he's speaking of African-Americans here, the person who feels frustrated by those who don't readily understand or acknowledge racism will struggle to consistently paint the narrative for them. I think that's true. I think that's true. In my estimation, that's true. And I'll say this as well. There is a point when I am counseling a person where the Holy Spirit begins to really take, take over. It's beautiful. When all of a sudden their guard drops and they lean into that appointment, they begin to open their hearts, and then what's amazing is, is they are so trusting. I could tell them to go stand on a box in the middle of a restaurant and they do it. What happened to get that person to that point? Because it doesn't happen much. That person, as much as I can deduce, that person at some point in the counseling session got to a place where he or she said inside their head, said, you know what? I trust him. I really do believe he has the best for me. But also, they are so desperate to change that those two factors, a desperation to change and an airtight trust in me leads them to say, you know what? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Just tell me. That only comes when they have reached a place where they, say, where they can really believe inside of themselves, I trust you. I trust you. And for them to be able to say that, they have to know that I am trustworthy. They have to know that I don't just look at them as their problem or their crisis, but I look at their story. You see, every person that I minister to comes in with a degree of shame. I shouldn't be this way. I want to be fixed, but I'm ashamed. And here's what most people tell me. Chris, I know this is the situation, but here's what gave rise to the situation. If you only knew how my dad treated me when I was a kid. If you only knew that my mother abandoned me. Every single person, black or white, tells me that. Any time they want me to speak into their lives and shepherd them, they, it, it, they are desperate that they know that I relate not just to where they are, but their story that led to where they are. All I'm asking is for us to do the same thing with black people. Affirm and acknowledge the story that gave rise to what we see as the African-American ethnic group in our, in our nation. Affirm that. Acknowledge that. I'm not saying you've got to agree with everybody in the news. I'm not saying that. I don't. I'm not saying you've got to agree with every assessment of every issue of justice in the news. I'm not saying that because I don't agree with all of those. What I am saying is that when people are hurt, to quit assessing them whether or not they have the right to grieve. Get out of your head. And meet them in their heart and grieve with them. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. You don't have to be a sociologist. You don't have to be a political scientist. All you have to do is be an empathist. Is there such a thing as an empathist? Creating new terms. I'm going to write a book. Empathist. Um, So I'm going to wrap up with giving a challenge here. I think it's interesting that in this text that we have before us today that it's interesting how Paul jumps from telling these two ladies to come back together and merge in the Lord how he gets from that concept to this the Lord is at hand Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why did he say that? Let's remember that he's talking to a a religious minority in Philippi. Philippi was a leading Roman colony. These people were religious minorities. They were viewed as strange and bizarre, and they probably experienced some degree of persecution. And so when Paul said this, he probably wasn't thinking, when you need a really good parking place, pray for that. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for a really good parking place. I don't think there's anything unspiritual about that. I used to, and I realized that I was stupid when I thought that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I don't think that that's what's fueling what Paul's saying here. I think what he's talking about is he realizes he's talking to people who are persecuted, who are a minority who are the victims of injustice, and he says, pray. Give your heart to God. Let your requests be made known to God. So my friends, we should pray for justice in our country. For black people, for Latino people, for white people, for everyone who suffers at the hands of injustice, we should pray. And then he says this, And the peace of God which surpasses understanding, a peace that, or maybe you could say it this way, that surpasses circumstances. Circumstances say that I should be depressed and devastated. But there's a peace that I can have that surpasses all of that. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your Hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why is it important to have our hearts and minds guarded when we have been victimized? Because our hearts and our minds will run to anger, fear, paranoia, accusation, rage, suspicion, meanness. Our hearts and minds will run to this. And my friends, I have seen many people. This week, their hearts and minds, black and white, run to these things. Meanness, hatred, accusation, anger, rage. So many of us have run to that today. Paul says we should pray, and the peace of God that rules over us may not change the circumstance. But it can change your heart. Is he saying, don't pray that the circumstances change? No. Pray that they change. Be active. But pray. The peace of God will come over and take over your hearts. And then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, listen to this. This is huge for us. Whatever is commendable if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. I'm sorry, I skipped some. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable. You think Paul is trying to make a point here? He says, Think on these things. I know that some of the things that we see in the news are factual, but it doesn't mean that they're pure. It doesn't mean that they're commendable. I'm not saying run from reality. I'm saying quit being a sponge that sucks in paranoia and bad news that fuels fear and anger and rage. Don't subject yourself to that. Don't subject yourself to political discourse all day long. This is why the scriptures beseech us to meditate on God's word, not meditate on Fox News or NPR or the Huffington Post or anything else out there. We don't meditate on these things. I've known people, Christians, who told me that they wanted to walk their kids through, and this is not a, I'm not trying to make a mean or harsh statement here towards this person, but they wanted to take their kids through Rush Limbaugh's writings so they could be raised as a strong, devout conservative. And these these same people have no idea of God's Word. They don't know God's Word. It's incredible to me. It is tragic that we are constantly downloading so much stuff from the news and the world around us that we're not know, we don't know God's Word. I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm not saying be, be, don't, you know, be afraid of facts. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that what Paul says here... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. My God, think on these things. Do not allow yourself to get pulled into these ugly Facebook debates. Don't do that. It's dehumanizing and gross. Meditate on this text this week, my friends. Give yourself to this. Be healed by the Spirit of Jesus. I hope that you will join me tonight at Missio Day Church at 6. I hope you will. I hope you will. If you can't, no shame, no condemnation. But I cannot wait to come together with some of you tonight and sing hear stories. I've got, I haven't talked to anybody yet. I'm just, we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move tonight. Nobody's going to grandstand, take over. We're just going to come with humble hearts and be with Jesus and be together. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I pray, Jesus, that whatever is pure and holy and lovely and just and excellent and commendable and truth that we would meditate on those things, marinate in those things, be changed by those things, become one with those things. Jesus, we love you. We need you. Help us to forgive in your name.